You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. This week, O'Reilly's Max Slocum chats with Bradley Wojtek, an assistant professor of cognitive science and neuroscience at UC San Diego. Bradley talks about using data-driven approaches in his neuroscience work, the Brain Scanner Project, and applying cognitive neuroscience to the zombie brain. Enjoy the show. You've been combining uh, data-driven approaches to neuroscience. How did you mix those two things? Part of it came about because of frustration, <laughs> I would say. Uh, so in the neurosciences, we've got something like three million peer-reviewed publications to go through. And when I was working on my PhD, uh, I was very interested in particular in two brain regions. And I wanted to know, how do these two brain regions connect? Like, what are the inputs to them and what are the output? Where do they output to? What are the brain regions? And in my naivete as a PhD student, I had assumed that there would be some sort of nice 3D visualization where I could click on a brain region and see all of its inputs and outputs. Mm -hmm. And such a thing did not exist. Still doesn't, really. Um, and so instead, what I ended up doing was spending my uh, three or four months of my PhD combing through papers written in the 1970s. That was when the bulk of this early work of tracing how brain regions connected, uh, are connected was done. And uh, so I just spent months pouring through this and I, I kept thinking to myself, this is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And this just stewed in the back of my mind for a really long time. Fast forward a couple years later and I was on a panel at Berkeley um, for the Cognitive Science Student Society and Jay McClellan, who's a really big name in the uh, sort of like neural network uh, world, he's a faculty at Stanford, he was also on this panel. And somebody in the audience had asked a question that sort of primed this memory of mine. And I said, you know, I think the peer review is probably smarter than we are, meaning the number of raw facts that are contained in the peer-reviewed scientific literature is probably vast when you've got three million or so papers. But our problem is combining that information. Like, how do you aggregate that information? No one person can do it. Um, and got to a little bit of disagreement back and forth with McClellan, but again, this kept simmering. And uh, about three months later, my wife was pregnant with her first child, and we're sitting at home, and uh, I, I said, you know, I think I, I, I think I've figured out how to, how to address this problem that I've been working on, uh, which is... Uh, basically very simple text mining. Just let's just scrape the text of these three million papers or at least the titles and abstracts and say what words co-occur frequently together. It's very, very rudimentary text mining um, with the idea that if words co-occur frequently like depression and serotonin, right? So most antidepressants are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Uh, that appears, they, they co-appear in a lot of papers. And so I said, okay, this might give us an index of how related things are. And uh, she challenged me to a code off. Uh, she's a better programmer than I am. And she's like, I can do that. And I can do that well before you did. And so fast forward a couple hours later and she'd gotten the prototype working already. Uh, she had this really nice AWS distributed uh, text scraper written. Um, and so she, ended up, she and I ended up writing a paper on this. Um, and it was, it was a good first effort, not great, um, but it was promising. And so what we ended up doing well, that had to sit for a while as, I, as we had the kids and like, you know, time for, for uh, sure. side projects slows down quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's started to ramp back up again. Now that I'm running my own lab at UC San Diego, um, I've got a, I call them my special projects division. It's actually just a group of really talented undergraduates that took uh, a data science class that I taught. And they're, they're really cranking away on this. I actually just got an email yesterday morning uh, with some new Python code that they'd integrated all these different databases successfully. So it's pretty exciting. I'm really excited to see what they, what they do with it. 
Um, but that's that's the that's the genesis. That's where it came from. Is that is that Brain Scanner? Is that that project? That it's an extension. It separate. Okay. It's an extension of Brain Scanner. Yeah. So the Brain Scanner project is, is the one I just talked about, where you can actually go to the website and you can type in a term like depression, and you see a graphic visualization of what terms most frequently. Uh, co-occur with depression in, in the literature. Um, the extension is actually uh, integrating um, uh, a couple of different databases and projects with this brain scanner and a sort of new focus of mine, which is um, the role that neural oscillations, brain waves, play in neural communication. And we've known about these things for decades, since like the 1920s, since uh, 29 actually, when Hans Berger invented EEG or discovered it, however you want to you, however you want to phrase that. And uh, he noticed that the brain activity, this electrical brain activity that we can record, uh, shows these oscillations at about 10 cycles per second, these sine waves, right? They just go like this. Um, and he called them the alpha wave, and we still call it the alpha wave today. And uh, it's, it's, this, it's defined as this one frequency range, 8 to 12 or so hertz. Uh, and that's how people define alpha. And the brain, we, we, we think it's kind of silly. There's no reason that the brain needs to obey this 10 hertz. Right? Like you might have an alpha oscillation of like 8.321 hertz and mm -hmm. mine might be 13.795 hertz or whatever. And so the next data-driven approach that we're taking is uh, taking huge amounts of uh, brain data from large groups of people and seeing what kind of variability do we get. How can we use machine learning to decompose the signals into their core components and then matching that up with other databases to try and understand where these oscillations are coming from and what their role are. So. That's the next one coming out, hopefully, in the next couple months. What do you anticipate with that? I mean, is it sort of, let's get all this data together and then see what happens? Or do you have some ideas of maybe what might be underlying all of this? Um, well, so we have, we have a practical aspect as well as a, uh, a, a hopeful aspect, I guess, in one sense. The practical side of things is providing a tool for researchers to decompose their signals into the core components without having to make any assumptions, mm -hmm. right? So the argument that we're making is, if I assume that your brain oscillations are 10 hertz and mine are 10 hertz, um, that is introducing variability by, uh, by making an assumption that is baseless. Okay. Um, and so if you can individualize these components, uh, then it provably, we, we show in the paper, uh, it provides more information um, about brain functioning. and. Uh, the other aspect, the theoretical aspect, is we don't really know where these oscillations come from. They're implicated in pretty much every psychological, or I shouldn't say psychological, every neurological or psychiatric disease, um, from depression to al uh, autism to uh, schizophrenia to Parkinson's. Mm -hmm. uh, they're playing a really critical role in brain functioning, and um, we don't know where they come from. Hmm. We have some very coarse ideas of what generates them, but not really. And to give you an idea, so our brains have 86 billion or so neurons, these brain cells, right? And those are what are electrically communicating with one another. We have at least as many what are called glial cells in our brains. Uh, literally just means glue. Um, so we have at least as many, so 86 billion of these other glial cells, which are thought to be non-functional, or they've been argued to be non-functional. They just provide support and structure, uh, hold the neurons in place, um, and uh, myelinate the axons, which are basically the cables that provides um, uh, it helps the signals propagate. Um, but there may be as up to, up to as 10 times as many. We actually, it's hard to count. So there's anywhere between 86 billion to almost a trillion of these other cells in the brain. And it turns out, it looks like they're probably doing something, including mm -hmm. maybe propagating these brain waves. Um, and so by integrating with other databases, we're actually hoping to, one database that we're integrating it with is the uh, Allen Brain Atlas. Um, so Paul Allen, one of the co-founders of Microsoft, has sunk 
half a billion dollars, I think, of his own money uh, into this institute in Seattle, which is to, the goal right now, the first level goal, is to identify uh, which genes are expressed, how strongly, in which parts of the brain. So it's a full gene expression mapping of both, uh, I think, mouse and human brains is what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. And they've made all that data publicly available. And so what we're doing is pulling that data and saying, okay, we know that this part of the brain oscillates at six hertz, and this one at 10 hertz, and this one at four hertz. Um, let's figure out exactly where these different oscillations are coming from, and then take those data and say, okay, uh, in the four hertz-y parts of the brain, are there any genes that are under or overexpressed? Because that might give us then a genetic clue as to what causes these oscillations. So um, really the goal is to, to create a sort of functional genetic, uh, and it's called the dynome, the dynamic electrical communication map of, of the brain. And that's what we're working on now. So kind of switching gears a little mm -hmm. bit here. Does it bother you at all when journalists and others seem to latch on to concepts <laughs> of like curiosity comes from this part of the brain, fear right. comes from this part of the brain? Is that incredible? As a neuroscientist, do you just look at that and go, oh, come on, come on, guys? Okay, I would say it used to bother me a lot more. Mm. It bothers me less now because at some point, uh, simplification is needed when communicating with the public. Um, the analogy I like to give is, as an undergraduate, when I was a, a, a physics major, you start out as a physics major taking classical mechanics, right, like Newtonian physics. Mm -hmm. uh, and then your next semester, you take E&M, electricity magnetism. And the, fact, the professor starts out by saying, actually, everything you learned last <laughs> semester, not really true. It's coarse and it works decently well, but here's how it really works. And then the next semester, you take quantum mechanics. And the faculty member says, actually, all that stuff you just learned, not quite true. Here's how we think it really works. Um, and so there is a utility in simplification. Um, the problem, what does bother me, is when that thinking leaks out of uh, the popular conception and starts influencing the way that actual practicing neuroscientists talk about and conceive of these, these kinds of functions. So when you start seeing neuroscientists publishing papers talking about the love area of the brain or the fury area of the brain, that's when it gets really frustrating because other professionals in the field, they should know better. How does that happen? Um, How does it go backwards like that? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine who's a, a philosopher, and we've been talking about where does, where does this backwards mm -hmm. propagation, this sort of creeping back of a metaphor being a metaphor to people forgetting it's a metaphor and start thinking it's the thing, yeah. where does that start happening? Um, and uh, I don't know. I think it just, it, it, my guess is uh, you have this really complicated system, the brain, the human brain, and in order to write about it in any coherent way, you need to use some analogies and metaphors. And so somebody comes up with a clever idea. Uh, so the example I like to use is one of the things I study is attention. And we talk about the spotlight of attention, which is I can be focusing, I'm actually looking at the camera right now, but I'm actually focusing on you. Like my attention is over on you. Um, but I can shift that attention. And even though now I'm still looking this way, I can see that you know somebody's over there and they're sort of swaying and whatever, right? I can move this spotlight of attention around that's semi-independent of where I'm looking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a phrase that is used in, in the neuroscience literature, the spotlight of attention. Uh, we don't really know what attention is though, right? It's like a, a behavioral phenomenon, same like memory, right? Uh, it might, there might be lots of different kinds of memory. There are lots of different kinds of memory. We use the same word to mean lots of different things. And so you have this sort of token, this idea like attention or memory. And people forget that it's 
what we're trying to understand is a biological process that we are encapsulating by the super term of attention. And people forget that that's what the attention means. And instead they start trying to look where in the brain does attention happen as though attention is the thing rather than neurons being the thing. Does that make sense? Interesting, yes. So I, I yes. think my guess is that's what, what's going on. I make that mistake all the time. I have to kick myself uh, to remind myself not to do it. Um, you start looking for you start looking for the placeholder term rather than trying to understand the biology. So it's an, is it an, an attempt at simplifying something that really is not that simple? Yeah, probably. Okay. I think that's a good way of putting it. I, I would be totally remiss if I didn't ask you about this. <laughs> so you have done a lot of work with taking your, your background in neuroscience mm -hmm. and applying it to the zombie brain. Right? <laughs> Talk about simplification. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So how, how did that come about? Uh, uh, so. Twofold. One, uh, apparently, if you get a bunch of PhD neuroscience students together uh, drinking beers and watching movies, what they start doing <laughs> is uh, overanalyzing everything. And so, sure. w the way that it started was uh, during my PhD, I was working uh, uh, with a friend of mine, Tim Verstein, and he's now a professor at Carnegie Mellon. And uh, we'd get together with our friends and we'd watch zombie movies and you know whatever. We'd have movie nights. And we started saying, well, what, you know, why do you why do you think zombies are, are you know move the way they do? Why do they lumber? Um, and we'd say, okay, well, maybe it's a cerebellar issue. Maybe the cerebellum isn't really functioning right. Uh, what would be wrong? Why can't they talk? Okay, well, that's obviously, you know, Broca's or Wernicke's issues. And so that's, that's what we'd start to do. And the way that it then went forward even farther was if I went, I, I do a lot of, uh, I try to do a lot of public communication and outreach. So I do blogging, I do uh, lots of lectures at high schools and elementary schools and all that kind of stuff um, to try and get students interested in STEM. And uh, especially underrepresented, I try to go to underrepresented schools, you know, they don't have a lot of money, they have poor STEM programs. And if I go in and say, I'm interested in the role uh, that neural oscillations play in coordinating information transfer between brain regions by temporally locking, so, you know, it just, they don't care, it doesn't make any sense. Right. Um, and so you have to bring it down to a level that's interesting. And I noticed I, I gave a talk once on the zombie brain. I said, let's just talk about the zombie brain. And suddenly these students who had no background in neuroscience had opinions about what I was saying, right? <laughs> I would tell them about the cerebellum versus the role that the, the basal ganglia play in movement. And then they would, they would say, okay, well, why are there fast zombies? Would that be a basal ganglia problem versus a cerebellar problem? And they suddenly had ideas and they were generating thoughts and they were integrating the information about the neuroscience in a way that just was very surprising to me. Um, and so we realized we had uh, uh, a thing, like a, something that worked, that got students interested, right? You can engage them in a way that they actually cared. And also, to be honest, it's partly a way of poking fun at our own field. Um, so this issue I talked about, about like attention and mm -hmm. researchers looking for where in the brain does attention happen, it's kind of our backhanded way of, of poking fun at that process as well. If I can come up with a plausible sounding explanation using cognitive neuroscientific acceptable terms for why a zombie behaves the way that it does, then that probably indicates that there's something wrong with the way that we approach the ideas <laughs> in the field. And so it's kind of, it's a little bit of a smart ass move on my sure. part. And, um, sure, but smart ass science. But I want, you know, it has, I, it, it's, I, I would like to think that the, the motivation is good. Is there, okay, I gotta <laughs> ask you this too, but is there a particular archetype of zombie that you feel as a neuroscientist does not qualify as a zombie? Oh, wow. Because um, we've got all those different kinds, right? We've got the slow lumbering kind, we've got the unusually fast kind. That, 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 you know, it turns out there were, there are fistfights that break out. I, about this. <laughs> I was at a zombie conference in Seattle in like 2010, ZombieCon it was called. Um, and there was a whole panel on fast versus slow zombies and like are fast zombies real zombies and people really care. This is very important uh, to the zombie <laughs> community. 
Um, I would say I liked the movie a great deal, uh, surprisingly so, but the movie Warm Bodies, where the zombie had an internal monologue and it could cure itself of its zombification by re-engaging empathy with, uh, with people, mm. was a great movie that I would say probably doesn't count as a zombie. That, that was that like the rom-com version, The rom-zom-com, right? yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, That's where, that's just too far. <laughs> but it was actually surprisingly a good movie, right? It actually right. had a really good, uh, I, I thought the message of, um, so the, the, without doing terrible spoilers, but the message of the movie essentially was, uh, you know, these zombies are acting, that he eats his future girlfriend's boyfriend, right? He's a zombie and then he eats a human and, you know, he's, as he's doing this, he feels bad about it. He's thinking, why am I doing this? This is terrible. And I actually thought that was kind of an interesting message that we do that all the time. Sure. No, I mean, hopefully not the cannibalism yeah. part, but <laughs> we, we act against our own better interests and will often, right. right? And I think that's a very interesting aspect of our humanity. And focusing on that in a zombie film, I thought was pretty neat. So I enjoyed that part. Last question for you. What people or projects are you following these days? Uh, I already talked about the Allen Brain in, uh, Institute. Uh, I think they've got some really interesting stuff going on. Uh, Christoph Koch, who was a neuroscientist at Caltech, they hired a couple years ago to run their scientific endeavors. Um, and he wants to understand basically the same question I'm, I'm interested in, which is how does the brain talk to itself? How do these 86 billion neurons in this crazy, noisy, biochemical, electrical environment in our head, how do they organize in any way to, to create meaningful behaviors? Um, the other one would be, uh, there's a professor, Russ Poldrack, at, oh, he actually just moved to Stanford recently. Um, he's got a couple of interesting sort of open science, open neuroscience endeavors going on, um, opening up large amounts of brain imaging data for the public, um, trying to create an ontology of behaviors and cognition. So understanding uh, the tasks that we use, the, t the tests that we do to understand like attention to memory, uh, how do they interrelate. Uh, and the last one would be Tali Rakoni. Uh, he's a neuroscientist also, I'm obviously very neuroscience heavy. Um, he's a neuroscientist at uh, Boulder and he created this really neat tool right around the same time we, we released Brain Scanner. I think it's actually much better, to be honest, um, uh, called NeuroSynth, uh, S-Y-N-T-H. And what he did was take um, peer-reviewed brain imaging papers, so fMRI, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and he took these papers, several thousand of them, and in, uh, where often the standard in the field is to say, okay, we've done some brain scan on a large group of people, um, and across all of these subjects, here is the XYZ 3D coordinate of where in the brain was most active during, you know, this memory task or, uh, you know, during a reward task or whatever. And he took all of those data, all of those 3D points from thousands of these papers and then said, okay, let's rank order the word occurrences in each paper. So if this paper has XYZ coordinate, you know, here, uh, and the word attention appeared 1% of the time, we'll weight that XYZ coordinate with attention mm -hmm. by 1%. Um, and if that same paper also had memory, uh, you know, 0.1%, we'll also weight that same region with memory by 0.1%. And uh, you can go in and type in a term, mm -hmm. and it'll say, probabilistically speaking, across these thousands of papers, here's where in the brain memory is. Um, and the cooler part is then reversing that process, which is you can feed it a brain image of somebody's brain activity and say, given this pattern of activation, really? based upon the large <laughs> amounts of data in the peer-reviewed literature, what was the person probably doing? Um, and that's incredible. I think yeah. that's really amazing. It works really surprisingly well. And so I've been working pretty hard trying to figure out how to integrate that with some of the work that we've been doing. Uh, we've been doing. And he's, he's, it's, just, it's a really neat tool. Okay. So well, yeah, that's it. Thanks so much for being with us. Appreciate Thanks. it. <laughs> Thank you.
You can reach Bradley through his Twitter handle at Bradley Wojtek. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. Mm-hmm.